We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back to Politics Friday. This is uh, session number 10, and we're going through Gene Merrill's book, Everlasting Dominion and talking about how one thinks biblically about politics. So I hand we it over are. to you. We are. And guess what? I can tell just right off the bat, Hampton, that you are excited. <laughs> I am. Because th this is going to be a theological meat sandwich. Okay. <laughs> okay. No salad for us, boy. We gotta, we're digging in with the meat sandwich. But here's why we're doing this. It sounds funny that we would go through an Old Testament theology book, uh, picking out the details from our great guide, Eugene Merrill, concerning politics. I don't think when he wrote this book, he certainly had that application in mind. I can't, I can't imagine that he did. And yet, what we're trying to do is lay the foundation such that when we ultimately do get to the issues of the day, th there will be no disagreement. Because right. the found the foundation will be so strong for all, for us and all our listeners that you you couldn't possibly look at it in the other in any other way. I don't say that with pride. I just say it. The issues when you dig down to the very bedrock of what's going on are very clear. Yeah, I agree. They're very clear. So last time we went through Merrill and we talked about one of my favorite subjects because. I, when I read him on the subject of uh, anthropology, mankind, and he suggests, you know, that we are God's image, not in God's image. I just, I almost had a tear streaming down my face because I'm like, yes, finally someone sees it. <laughs> it was so, it was so great. And then the second step in that direction of our theological meat sandwich was there's a suspicion that I've always had, and I, I only call it a suspicion. Uh, these things make for great debates. I'm not interested in the debates so much, just the thinking around the subject that perhaps it is the case that a number of Jesus's miracles recorded in the scripture were not because he's the son of God, but because he's the son of man. And that raised the whole question, well, what could Adam 
as the image of God, uncorrupted, uncor- uncorrupted, not do. Right. And, and that's to me just a fascinating question. And so Merrill, well, I, <laughs> go ahead. I think when I read back and look at what they did early on and it talks about so-and-so was the maker of musical instruments and mm-hmm. worked with metal and different things. And I'm thinking, you know, they were barely corrupted back then as far yes. as the gene pool. Yes. And so how smart must they have been to be able, you know, we, we have this evolutionary idea of prehistoric man and we've become more, you know, developed in our technology and those kind of things. But when you read that in Genesis, I'm like, Hmm, that, that looks pretty advanced to me. I agree a hundred percent. I, it, it, we're deceived because, because we, we breathe the air of ev- evolution, even though we don't believe that, but it still affects your thinking. And like you're saying, you almost picture Adam as some sort of caveman or something. You couldn't be farther from the truth, yeah. you know, Those, and I often think, well, we enjoy um, such advances in technology, but I can't explain them you know i'm not the technological guy were were there not other people developing that for me i i wouldn't have it right and and that gets back to our subject you you remember talking about the wisdom that accumulates through the natural law in any given society and that's what we're the beneficiaries of and, and I, one of my favorite things reading, you know, spending years in a library, I remember coming across one time, uh, typically we associate the higher math with the Greeks. And I remember reading some, one, one of the famous guys, can't remember who it was, Demosthenes or whoever. <laughs> he was talking about the math. He goes, oh, we learned this from the Egyptians. <laughs> oh, yeah. It really, it goes beyond the Greeks. It's you can't imagine. I remember studying for um, some courses that revolved around Babylonian literature. Their math, you, you could not get what they put a normal run-of-the-mill scribe through in their day, like around the time of Nebuchadnezzar. You could not get, I promise, a mathematical whiz in college today to do. And that was common for them. You know, remember, they're, they're regulating the Euphrates River. They've got all kinds of engineering stuff going on, building what they were building and controlling that river that bifurcated their city. It, it's amazing. So all, all that to say, to get back to our meat sandwich, Hampton, <laughs> don't, don't get me going on the salad. We got to get to the meat, okay. the meat sandwich. All that to say, you know, I often wondered what Adam could not do in the garden. So when you look at the text, uh, because we could speculate all day long, but the way the text addresses that issue is the animals are brought to Adam and he names them. And there's in, in the exposition of that text, 
there's no hesitation. He's not turning around, looking over his shoulder at God. You know, what do you think I should call this one? I don't know. The feet on that look a little different. <laughs> He's not asking questions. He probably he, was think, looking at the animal and said, this thing has a shell and nine, <laughs> nine rings. I think I'm going to call it uh, Dasypus novum cinctus. <clears throat> That's yeah, he's, scientific name for a for an armadillo. That's so perfect. Well, I'm certain the one that he did get right, I'm certain, was the saber tooth, Smilodon fatalis. There could hardly be a more accurate <laughs> name for that thing. Um, but you get the point, right? He's right. not hesitating. So the the picture in the text is what I would call perfect sovereignty. Whatever he names that animal. That's what it is. And, and the animals aren't rebelling. You get the picture. They're lining up, wait, almost eagerly waiting to come before him to see how he's going to describe them. You know, it's, it's almost like he's bestowing glory on them with their names. Uh, all, all of this before the fall, of course. But so the point is, imagine Jesus as the second Adam. So when he does certain miracles... Is he doing that out of his perfect humanity or, or his deity? And in a sense, it's, it's not a fair question. Who can say he's, he's the perfect um, composition? He's, he's not bifurcated. He's not half God and half man. He's 100% of each, and it, it works together perfectly. So in one sense, it's, a, it's not a profitable discussion, but it's a fun one. Yeah, so... Let's pick up uh, Merrill elaborating on that subject because I am going to pick a bone with him at some point, but I do so with great fear and trembling because <laughs> he, he's a real hero to me. But when we get to it, you'll, you'll see what I mean. So a number of scholars in recent years have drawn attention to the ancient Near Eastern practice by conquering kings of erecting images of themselves in the lands that they brought under their control. So he's elaborating on the idea of man as the image of God. These statues were not identical to the kings themselves, of course, but they represented them and therefore were to be treated with the same respect the king himself would demand. To deface or remove the image would be interpreted as an act of rebellion against the sovereign, and the perpetrator could expect severe repercussions. So in Genesis 9, 6, the death penalty, right, for striking down a human being mm -hmm. because that's the image of God. So to step outside of where we're immediately going and to take a slight detour instead of a meat sandwich over to a carrot here on the side, how could anyone claiming to be part of the Christian faith, the household of Christian faith, vote or support in any way abortion right which is you you talk about defacing the image of god i mean you are destroying the image of god 
and he has instituted the death penalty for that. that. That's what I mean. I know this is a little detour. I'm not going to go far down this road, but that's what I mean by if you lay the proper foundation for these political issues through a mature understanding of the scriptures, you're not going to have disagreement o- over the issues of the day. They, they will be so clear. So back to Merrill now. The application of this analogy, like a, a king's image, a statue, to our text in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that's the creation of let us make man in our image, demands a different way of understanding the preposition ordinarily translated in. We've covered this, but I, I want to recover it because it's important to lay this foundation. The Hebrew particle, buh, admittedly bears the locative nuance most of the time. So that can mean in like spatially, but the rest of it, it's an adverb often of comparison. That's well attested to use it that way. So in view of this way, the phrase in question would be, would read as our image, not in our image. So we're so used to reading it, let us make man in our image but read it like this. Let us make man as our image. It's so powerful. Not in a new agey way, not obviously not saying we're divine, but the image, but on the other hand, the balance to that is the image is such a powerful concept. Adam was put here to rule. That's the purpose of an image is to express sovereignty, right? When when Nebuchadnezzar came and beat your butt in a battle and then put his statue in your city, that represented his dominion over that city, right? So Adam, you know, placed over the creation, that represents God's dominion. Nothing supersedes Adam except God himself. Let me let me pause because I, I want to lay a, a big picture idea. I, I think this is critical for anybody's worldview. And it, as we've discussed before, that's how I see the Christian faith ultimately is as a worldview. I don't see it as a religion, though I understand it fits that definition. I think it's much more accurate uh, and healthy for Christian maturity to view the Christian faith as a worldview. So picture a pyramid in your mind and picture that pyramid divided into four levels. So there's a level at the top, next level down, Mm -hmm. next level down, and then a base. Right. And label that period, the authority structure of the universe. (laughs) Now, level number one, that is God. That, that is the, the triune God. Okay. okay. Level number two, often people mistake this one and they would put the angelic, yeah, they would put, put the angelic realm there. I would not. I would put Adam. <laughs> right. Well, that, that, I don't know where, but doesn't it say somewhere that we'll, we will rule angels? It's the first Corinthians. Paul says, how, how are you like not, how are you not deciding these cases? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? 
And, and think of this, uh, Philippians chapter two, every knee where in heaven and on earth will bow to Jesus Christ. Jesus is a man. Sometimes people think they have this concept that Jesus was a man, you know? Yeah. When he came here, but you know, now risen from the dead, he went went back to being a spirit. (laughs) He went back. Yeah. He's back to, he's a man forevermore. And it's given what we're saying that Merrill is elucidating for us, becoming a man in a sense, Hampton, it's kind of strange to think about it this way, but taking on flesh as a human being, was not that big a step down. That's a weird, I don't want to minimize his humility in doing that, but theologically, that's not that big of a step. My my favorite title for Jesus, uh, back to 1 Corinthians, is the second Adam. Oh, I love that. First Adam dropped the ball, you know, clean up hitter. Oh, we got a chance to run the whole thing here. He strikes out on three straight pitches. Jesus comes up, hits it out of the park on the first pitch. So it's the second Adam. So back to the authority structure. Level number one at the top, that's God. Level number two is man. Level number three is the angelic realm. And level number four is the creation, the the animals, the creation itself. Okay. Okay. So have that picture in your mind. Now, Here's what went wrong. That's just a critical question in worldview studies, right? Who are we? How do we get here? What went wrong? (laughs) Those are really the issues we're discussing. But everybody's got to have those hammered out hard in your thinking so that it informs the rest of the data you take in. So here's what went wrong. Levels two and three got together and decided to become number one. Wasn't that the temptation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, why, why don't you eat that fruit? Oh, no, no, no. God, God said, you know, we, oh, you won't die. What'll have, he's keeping you from doing that because then you'll be like him. So imagine the lines between number two and three, those levels of the pyramid blurred. Two and three become united and try to take over number one united for like the the demonic aspect of the angelic realm right unites with mankind tries to become number one before that so in genesis chapter one and two the authority structure of the universe the result of that is peace and harmony the result of that is the animals coming to adam and he's naming them man everything's work the engine is humming Once two and three get together and try to be number one, the result of that is chaos. Death is the first thing that enters in, just as God said it would happen. And now now there's just chaos. Now everything has to be overcome. Now man's dominion is by the sweat of his brow. It used to be just by speaking. Adam could rule the creation. Now he's going to have to contend with it. The earth is going to yield its produce only on account of labor. The animals are going to kind of submit, but only because, you know, man can make weapons and things like that. It's not the harmony that was in chapter one and two. So here's God's 
solution to combining levels two and three, his solution is to combine levels one and two. Isn't that a perfect description of Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. Fully human, fully divine in one. That's the solution. That is the entire Bible in one picture. It's the authority structure of the universe, four levels, two and three, drop the ball, start the rebellion, one and two, get together, take over. The ultimate result is, again, perfect peace and harmony, but now greater because now it's not unconfirmed. Now it's confirmed. Jesus Christ is not uncontested. He's victor over the chaos. That, that's the whole Bible. The, the critical aspect of that for our purposes, you know, this morning and through our Politics Friday has, has been to hammer out as clearly as we can exactly what a human being is. Because you can't discuss political issues as we are faced with today without a clear understanding of what a human being is. Because the pressures against us are essentially coming from one dominant point of view. They're coming out of communism. They, they, those are the issues that face us today, regardless of how it's dressed up. That, that's what's trying to take over the world is the communist movement. Well, and to go back to your pyramid, the um, Satan's plan or counterfeit is to combine number four and number two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and say that we're just animals yeah to let number four inform number two yeah that's right yeah. that's right yeah and we'll get so on our when we go through our worldview sessions and and we get to darwin you know maybe we've mentioned him a little bit but we're we always put him off a little bit because he needs such a big discussion because uh, as the father, so to speak, of evolution, or the, at least the face of evolution, um, that theory, and it remains a theory, right? It's not right. the law of evolution. There's a reason it's still a theory, because there is no real evidence for it. But that theory is so wrong that it, we just have to spend a bunch of time on that. So people are are well-equipped in their thinking with how to deal with that. Right. So, but you're right. It's, that's a good observation about the pyramid. So uh, back to Merrill here, he makes a point that creating man as the image, as opposed to in the image means ontologically in essence, human beings are the image. And so it's a function term. The, the creation of man as the image, think in terms of that concept functionally. Okay. So what was Adam's job? To rule. That's the first command he receives from the Lord. That's obviously the job of an image is to rule. That's like telling a young dog to run. You know, that's it's like telling a fish that's just like, hey, swim over there. Well, of course they're doing those. That's what they were designed for. That's what Adam's job description is. That's what his design was for. And I'm I'm using the term Adam just to represent all mankind. Obviously, uh, it's Adam and Eve are both the image of God. 
So both equipped to rule and run the universe, that becomes explicit in later texts. But So I'm using Adam that way to represent all of mankind. So here's the next paragraph from Merrill. Besides alleviating the tension inherent in comparing the ineffable God to his creation, no matter how noble to understand man's relationship to God in terms of role and not essence is much more in line with the purpose and commission of mankind outlined in the statement concerning his creation. That's a fancy way to say what I just said. <laughs> think of terms, they think in terms of uh, function, right? When you think of humankind, think in terms of function. And I wonder what, you know, this is the first time this crossed my mind. So forgive my not, not expressing this very clearly, but I wonder what communism would say, you know, what's the function of mankind? I, I wonder how they would even address that or if that would even come up. I don't know. Cogs in the machine. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're nothing but a laborer in that system. So regardless, pressing on with Merrill. Having determined to make man as our image, God says of that image, let them rule. It's obvious that the nature of man was closely connected to his task just as the statue of a king was taken to be the king himself in terms of its representation, so mankind was to be understood as God insofar as he stands in the place of God. Remember, I'm not going down some new agey path that we're divine. I'm just expressing our function is to rule as God's image. Lest that sounds sort of strange when you, when you hear Merrill say that, that let me read it again. So mankind was to be understood as God insofar as he stands in the place of God. Think of this line from uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. God, speaking to Moses, says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. <laughs> a little, is that a little strong? Seems like it. From the Lord himself. I have made you God to Pharaoh, right? I mean, you could imagine him saying the same thing to Adam. I have made you God to this creation. As long as we're balancing it out, right? I'm not saying Moses is divine or Adam is divine. Jesus is, but I, I'm just saying, don't minimize what the text is presenting, that that concept that mankind is the image is so powerful. It's so powerful that if you strike down the image, you get killed for that, according right. to God's God's word, right? We've, we've lost that whole concept. But contrary to God's sovereignty, man's role in this capacity was not unlimited, for the boundaries of his authority are clearly defined as the fish, the birds, the livestock, all the other land animals. This is the order in which these creatures were created in order that speaks perhaps the increasing complexity of life form. All share in common the breath of life, but all in common are also relegated to a position far below the dignity of man. 
man is to them as God is to man. What, so what's the first thing, you, you know, when your children were born, were you there? Yes. At their birth? I, I was at Sophia's birth. Did you, what was your first emotional sense? With Amazement. You, with <laughs> Amazement. Yeah. I, I remember the first time, you know, they'd swaddle her in some towel, you know, bundle her up to give them to you for a second. I, th- I think they let the male handle it for, you know, a couple seconds before they quickly snatch it back, lest you start playing basketball or football with it or something. But I, I remember uh, holding Sophia and just had this overwhelming sense of responsibility. And, and that's how I see Adam. You know, I don't just see the authority given to him. I see the responsibility of doing that. And that, that brings us right back to our issue. Friday politics. I mean, the responsibility of mankind to rule the earth as God would have it done. That is our primary task. By the way, so here's another tangent to that. I think that I'm bringing up these big issues so people can just nail them down in their thinking. That's why I'm doing this. So as an analogy, you know, uh, my way of coaching, if I have a kid from scratch in swimming, I spend days with them typically right off the bat. If if I have my own druthers, right? If Steve would let me just do it the way I want to do it do almost nothing but float and kick because if you can balance in the water and kicking is a critical part of balancing man then you can learn how to swim and without doing that you're just going to be fighting the water most Mm -hmm. of the time you got to learn how to balance and kicking is critical to balance so as we watched our children grow i mean we're not seeing it so much but really what that kid's figuring out how to do uh, in their first year of life is how to balance. And pretty soon they can walk. And then you don't really go back and address that anymore once they've learned that basic stuff. So the basics of the Christian faith are really what we're hammering out in these last couple sessions. Well, and I was just thought came to me that when you're talking about uh, taking care of the environment, you know, part of that is, you know, treating the earth right and being responsible and not making a mess and replanting trees. And that's all, you know, I think good things and biblical things. But a lot of what we see today is worshiping Mother Earth and they use things to gain power. And so that's taking that kind of stuff too far. Yeah, it gets twisted that the whole beautiful concept of our stewardship of the creation gets twisted, right? Once you remove God from the equation, it gets twisted. But remember the statements in the Old Testament, you know, about God uh, giving Canaan to Israel and so on. There will be statements to this effect. The land is mine. (laughs) I'm, I'm divvying it out to you guys as I see fit, but it's mine. So be careful how you live on it. Right. Right. Steward steward it. And so even when there's murder, it'll say the blood, you know, the ground will cry out 
right? right? Murder hurts the creation itself. All sin can be viewed in some sense. I'm not, I don't want to get off track here, but all sin can be viewed in one sense as tearing apart the creation fabric and all wisdom, godly wisdom can be seen as strengthening the creation fabric. I, I love looking at it that way. Um, it, everything's, yeah, everything's interconnected like that. Um, so anyway, uh, as our children were born, you know, the authority, but the, the responsibility to administrate God's creation, it, that is politics. That all of this is so biblical. It's just, we got to lay the right foundation. So I, I know I'm beating a, beating a horse with that, but it, it's critical for us. So what, what I was ultimately going to say, Hampton, so back to the whole story of the Bible, initially God was present here with Adam. It wasn't like heaven was up to, you know, God had his throne in heaven and Adam was down here and, you know, they could make a long distance call now and then they could check in. He walked with Adam is the phrase in the garden. They lived together in the end. That's going to happen again, right? That's what you see in the last couple chapters of the book of revelation. The city of God comes down the new Jerusalem, from heaven to the earth. God is present here again. So the theme, the biblical theme, I think that a lot of Westerners miss and it's dominant. It, it's one of the largest themes. And it's one of the top themes, top three themes in the Bible. It, and most Westerners miss this. I, and I say that to my own shame. I missed it for only about 39 years. I finally, <laughs> finally catching up to it just a little bit. But uh, the theme that connects all of that is the theme of the temple. Did you, do you in your thinking or have you in the past thought of uh, the garden, kind of not as a garden with here's my row of corn, here's my row of tomatoes and stuff like that, but you sort of like a forest scene. Right. Yeah. And, and indeed, you know, it, it is that, but that's not the point. It, that is the, the imagery, the vision you're supposed to see, but let me just state it plainly. The Garden of Eden is a temple, and Adam and Eve are the stewards of the temple. They are the priest kings put there literally to rule, and they have their job description can be broken down two ways. Keep it clean and expand it. Right. That's okay. what you do with a temple, right? They dropped the ball on that first ordinance. They didn't keep it clean. But they are expanding it. That's reproduce, right? right? Bear children, fill the earth. You you can't cover the earth with the temple of God, you know, with just two people. So one of the ways you know this, Hampton, is when they create when Solomon creates, you know, what we refer to as the temple. Notice those verses that describe them carving scenes into the wooden portions of the temple, and they're carving the garden right in right. their mind they are recreating the garden of eden and and they're not wrong and dude that is explicitly what they're doing on purpose that's how god sees it they at that point in the history of the world boy we were close to uh you know the end goal 
very close with, with the reign of Solomon. Um, he is the son of David. And you know another guy who's the son of the ultimate son of David, right? Right. But so when you think about politics, boy, you cannot remove Solomon from the equation. That's why there was so much wealth in Israel, because his reign was so full of wisdom. It wasn't just the blessing of God on Israel at that time, though I don't, I'm not minimizing that. My point is the form of the blessing is when you run things the right way, there will be blessing, right? God will just open up the storehouses and pour them out on you. When, right. when you understand who he is and who mankind is and you administrate it correctly, he'll pour out his blessing on that. And you've seen uh, an approximation of that on this country the United States, uh, great blessing on the United States. It isn't just because we have great resources. There are other nations with resources the size of ours. It, the blessing on the United States from God was because the founders of this country essentially understood him to a large degree. And they set up the government in accordance with biblical principles. Right. Uh, so I'm on my hobby horse, but let me get back to uh, Merrill. So contrary to God's sovereignty, man's role in this capacity was not unlimited. For the boundaries of his authority are clearly defined as fish, birds, livestock, and all the other land animals. This is the order in which these creatures were created in order that speaks perhaps increase of increasingly increasing complexity of life form. All share in common the breath of life. That's going to be real important in a few minutes. But all in common are also relegated to a position far below the dignity of man. Here's our statement where I got off track. Man is to them as God is to man. And just as God has dominion over man, so man is to dominate the animal world. This presumably was a matter of little effort at the beginning before the fall. The record states that the Lord brought before the man all the creatures of the earth to see what he would name them. That's Genesis 2, 19 and 20. I think you pointed out this before. Imagine Adam's vocabulary. Yeah. Did, you know, here's all the animals of the creation and you're naming them without hesitation. That alone is thousands of words just yeah. just the nouns involved right let alone right. the verbs and adjectives the docility with which they came suggests a harmony of relationship both within the realm of nature and between it and mankind that's so when i tell you you know before we do a podcast and i always say hampton get excited i mean is is there a more exciting subject than this the real purpose of mankind, imagine in the, you know, when we say garden, you know, just imagine perfect creation, rivers, trees, everything, mountains, and you're running the show just the way it should be. There's nothing as great as that. There's nothing as fulfilling as that. Remember how when we talked, um, you know, going through the Truman book about Rousseau and so on, and how in love with nature he was. And you're just reading that going, almost crying, going, please don't miss the boat, Bruce. It's, it's nature 
it's creation, but it's God's creation. And you're trying to remove God from that thing. But when you put him back in it, you know, when you reestablish the authority structure of the universe, our four-tier pyramid, it's just going to be incredible. It, it, see, one of the ways people miss out on that is I think they still conceive the, the bifurcation of heaven and earth. You know, when you die and you, quote, go to heaven, see, you go up and, and then you're, see, you're not part of the earth anymore. In the final analysis, heaven will be on earth. Heaven will be back here. We will run it the right way. How do you not get excited about that? It's yeah. so cool. And it's going to happen. It is inexorably happening even as we speak. We cannot screw it up because God is going to make that happen. It's yeah. just so cool. It informs your worship. You know, it, you can just feel the joy flowing out of your heart. You you feel like praising God. It's It's cool. So... Many, I think, would be su surprised that we label this section of our podcast Politics Friday, but that's what it is. You didn't know politics could be so fun. So here we go. Another paragraph. You got to watch me on time, Hampton, because okay. on this, this subject, I'll just go forever if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't rein me in. This is our theological meat sandwich with his fall into sin. Ah. Uh, Ah, uh, does that break your heart? With his fall into sin, man surrendered much, but not all of his capacity to be the image of God. His reigning became now not one of willing compliance on the part of creation under his charge, but an obedient, an obedience predicated on man's superior intelligence and resourcefulness and the repetition of the creation mandate to Noah. We've read that so many times in our right. podcast. The Lord reminded him that his rule, unlike Adam's, would require coercion and domestication. Rather than submitting by a mere word of command, animals in the post-Diluvian world would come to heal only because of the terror that man would engender within them. Man's role as suzerain remained intact, but his ability to enforce it was profoundly inhibited. Oh my right. gosh. So here, here's my favorite thing about the podcast. Like you couldn't do this. I don't think it would be appropriate to do this in a classroom, but on a podcast, where it's just me and you, <laughs> we can tell stories. And this one is part embarrassing, but part, I think, a powerful story, maybe happened to me one day, unexpected. And uh, every now and then, I'm not, I'm not a movie guy, but it was a fun way to be with Kathy and Sophia. Actually, quite often, I preferred if they would just go to the movie and I could stay home and read. And then and then they would come home and I would love interviewing them individually. You know, well, oh, how was it? And, and get the different takes because it reveals so much about them. You know, what they what they each appreciated. 
Yes. So, and a great example of that, I, this one did happen. So I stayed home and they went to watch The Incredibles. Have you ever seen that uh, Pixar right. movie? Okay. So, uh, Sophia, how was the movie? Oh, it was so good. Oh, what was it about, Sophia? Oh, it was about this big, strong guy, you know, that could beat up the enemy. And, oh, Kathy, how was the movie? Oh, it was good. What was it about? A guy going through midlife crisis. You know, it was so, <laughs> it was so funny to see, see the difference in perspective. But one time we went to see a movie. And of course, this was a book beforehand, which I had never read. And it, it, I don't think it was that popular of a movie, but it should be. Oh, man, was it good. It was called The Bridge to Terabithia. Have you ever? I've heard of that. I might have even seen the movie, but I don't remember it. So we we watched the movie. And I, this is going to sound really strange. I mean, you, I'm almost afraid to tell you this because you're going to look at me differently after <laughs> hearing this. But we watched the movie. And the next thing I know, someone is like shaking my shoulder, asking me if I'm okay. And it, I sort of come to... And I look around and I'm in this theater and I'm like, what? And I look down, I am drenched in tears. And there, I didn't know there was that much liquid in a human body. <laughs> I had been sobbing so hard that I forgot where I was. I had blacked out. Sophia and Kathy, you know, left and went to the car. And after like a couple minutes, they're like, where's dad <laughs> you know did, did he come out with us you know they had to come in and it was kathy shaking my shoulder you know are you okay and so the essence of, of what happened so just these kids you know going through some really difficult life struggles as like young teenagers maybe 13 14 years old and they they really struggle in their family situations and at school you know they're picked on and made fun of but when they get out of school, the girl takes the boy, you know, over the bridge into the forest. And as she calls it, this here we're in Terabithia. And when they get in that place, man, they rule. You know, there's monsters and stuff, but they conquer them without a sweat. It's no problem. Ever life is perfect. They're in, they rule in mm -hmm. Terabithia. And I I think what hit me you know, was that is such a biblical picture. And I've, I've never lost the emotion of that when you read Genesis 3 and the horror of what went down in that chapter and what we lost and how perfect what we had was and how perfect it'll be when it's restored. But I'll, I'll just never forget that line. Wow. The, the, the boy at one point, you know, just shouts in triumph, you know, he had defeated some ogre or something, you know, in the forest. <laughs> and he just goes, we rule in Terabithia. I mean, he's just, it's his, it's like he came home, you know, it was the essence of who he was. And I mean, that's the biblical story. Except for the monsters. It was like the garden of Eden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we'll, we'll be able to subdue chaos um, and any force of chaos and any demonic attack with a word, with a simple word. 
yeah. when it's all all restored. It's just so exciting. That's why I tell you before our podcast, you know, get excited, man. We're we're gonna talk about the story. That's a have to watch that with that in mind. Oh. It, and it was so embarrassing, you know, and then it's not like when you can recover quickly from, you know, I'm staggering out of the, Kathy's holding me up, you know, as I'm trying to, you know, theaters are, they're sort of, they're sort of angled, you know, I got to walk up the ramp and I'm, I'm kind of staggering around. Boy, that was, a, that was so emotional. Wow. So. You know, with that story, how are we on time? Yeah, we're, we should probably wrap it up. Okay. What would you, anything you want to do to summarize or, I mean, that, um, that, that um, example right there was a, maybe a good summary. <laughs> good picture. I, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Okay. Well, until next time, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Oh.